This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuzer. The 2023 legislative sessions for Connecticut and New York are wrapping up. What did lawmakers approve and reject? And what does that mean for residents in our area? Let's find out. We begin in Connecticut with WSHU's senior political correspondent, Ebong Udama. And Ebong joins me live in the studio. Good to have you here, Ebong. Hello, Tom. A lot of big issues this session in Connecticut. And uh, I understand a lot of bills were on the table. Well, there are always a lot of bills at the beginning of a session Mm -hmm. and uh, a few that make it all the way through and get passed and signed into law. One that had a lot of attention at the beginning of the session was a bill that would have allowed for the killing of uh, bears, hunting of bears, because we've had uh, quite a few bear sightings. Mm, We've heard a lot about that. In Connecticut. Well, uh, they were able to kill that bill because uh, people are very sentimental about the idea of having open hunting of bears. Do more bills fall by the wayside than get passed typically in a legislative session? Oh, yes, because there are a lot of ideas that are thrown out there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, once they go through the scrutiny of public um, hearings and committee hearings and the whole committee process whittles them down, then the few that get through committee are further whittled down uh, getting onto the floor and getting a floor vote and then getting passed into law. Two that got quite a bit of attention this year, affordable housing and waste management. Let's start with housing. I think it was Bill 6633, uh, technically also known as the Fair Share Bill, and it would require towns to plan and zone for a certain number of affordable housing spaces. But that bill was changed significantly, I guess you would say, in committee. What happened? Well, you know, we have a housing crisis in Connecticut. Affordable housing. Affordable housing in Connecticut mm-hmm. is is one of the things that has stymied the development of the economy in the state. A lot of businesses want to hire people, but they can't afford to live in Connecticut. And the idea that came up was having more transit-oriented housing, multifamily housing, clustered around train stations and bus stations and places that it would be easy for people to use mass transit. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought that was a great idea until the cities and towns in Connecticut figured that they didn't want the state overriding their local zoning. And that was where the pushback came from. But a bill was approved without the transit-oriented housing. Yes, a bill was approved, and the bill has money for these types of developments. It has, uh, I believe, between three and $600 million has been allocated for that, and that will incentivize developers to try and develop more affordable housing. Developers can actually challenge local zoning in court the state already has laws on the books that would allow developers to challenge some of the local zoning. And that also means, I guess, local municipalities also now have the right to push back on developer plans if they don't fit what they see as fitting their their local uh, zoning rules and regs. Which is going to be taxing on the finances of these local communities. So they might have to weigh how, how much they want to spend defending their zoning in court. 
I understand the state Senate spent most of its final day this week caught in, I guess, a filibuster over the housing bill. How did that come about? You have to remember that the representatives represent these local communities, and most cities and towns in Connecticut were against this. But the bigger cities, like Hartford, where the speaker comes from, and East Hartford, where the majority leader in the House comes from, and New Haven, where the Senate president comes from, were all for this. And so it was the leadership pushing to have this. The governor also supported it. It was uh, one of the policies that he started the year trying to push. And so that was the dynamic that was going on. But there's a lot of pushback on that bill. From your reporting, have you been able to, and I know it's early, the session just closed, have you been able to get a feel for whether or not people think the affordable housing stock in the state will increase or will improve the way that the supporters of the original bill intended? Well, uh, Jason Rojas, the House Majority Leader, put it this way. He said he's uh, absolutely disappointed that they couldn't get this done the way they wanted to do it. And they'll keep coming back at it. They feel that uh, there's still an avenue to try and create more housing, but they feel that it is not enough. Let's talk about waste management. Uh, The bill which has been described as an ambitious proposal by the Lamont administration to overhaul the state's waste disposal and recycling system. That, I understand, was also scaled back by lawmakers to some extent. What happened there? Well, uh, local communities, again, uh, the tipping fees would have gone up uh, to pay for a lot of this. And a tipping fee uh, is? Uh, to, w- the waste, when local communities take their waste to the dumps or take them out of state, they have to pay for this, and that's what the tipping fee is. So basically, what we're left with is a study. So there's a pilot program that has been funded with a few million dollars, and uh, that would study way of handling food waste and also the incinerator that we have in Hartford is shut and we need to replace that. So they'll have uh, a request for proposal to come up with a study. So it's being pushed down uh, the line. But it is something that uh, the governor also uh, is pushing for and he feels that we have to deal with our solid waste management. Who would conduct this study? Uh, DEEP will put out a, a request for proposal. So the Department yeah. of Energy and it, Environmental Protection. Yes. How were the bills affected by the budget that the legislature actually passes? What's the relationship between the budget and the bills that become law? Well, the budget is a framework because most bills have a financial part to them. And that is taken care of in the budget. So you can pass whatever you want, but if it is not funded in some way, it probably will not happen. There's a financial note that goes with almost every bill that is passed. And that determines pretty much if it's a go or not. A lot of bills die because there is no funding to back them. And unless you can secure the funding to back them, lawmakers will not vote for them. It's a two-year budget. 
does it get reviewed after the first year? Absolutely. And that's uh, a part of the beauty of Connecticut having a two-year budget because a lot of things that are passed in the first year of the budget are reviewed by the second year and adjustments are made. Is it possible that bills that were passed but not funded at all, at least in the first year, well, gain l- funding in the you, second? Let me give you an example. The early voting bill passed, and, but the funding was an issue because local communities were saying that they would need more money than was budgeted for. And what the lawmakers came back with was, look, okay, we have this money in. We're going to have an election in the fall. If we need more money to open more polling places, if we actually need that many more polling places, we will know by next year when we do the revisions for the second year of the biennial budget. And the only thing I would like to add is the fact that the budget was a bipartisan budget because there were four different budget proposals that were considered and were merged to form this budget. There was the House Republican budget, uh, the Senate Republican budget, the governor's budget, and the appropriations budget. And basically, the negotiations were between those four budgets, and parts of those four budgets comprised the final product that came out. and The $51 billion two-year budget. Yeah. And that's why it was a bipartisan budget, because each caucus had a say on the budget and had contributed uh, in some way to the final product. Abong Udama is WSHU's senior political reporter. We've been talking about uh, the budget, the brand new budget just passed, and the 2023 legislative session that has just concluded in Connecticut. Abong, thanks for your time today and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. It's been a long time coming, but Connecticut lawmakers have finally approved a bill to allow for early voting in the state. And Governor Lamont has signed that bill. For more on this new law and how it'll impact voters and voting, we turn to the Connecticut Secretary of the State, Stephanie Thomas, and she joins us on Zoom. Secretary Thomas, welcome to the full story. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Connecticut was one of only four states, I understand, that did not allow for early voting. And this this House bill, 5004 technically, changes that. Now voters will have a 14-day window to cast a ballot, I understand. Uh, what else does this bill offer in terms of early voting? Sure, and that's correct. Um, Some of the first states in the nation adopted early voting in the 80s. So Connecticut is hardly an outlier here. Um, So we have become the 47th state uh, to allow for early voting. And it does provide for 14 days for general elections, but seven days for primaries and four days for some of those smaller and lower turnout elections like specials and and the presidential preference primary. But voters can look forward to going to a location in their town. Um, Every town will have at least one location and many towns can have additional locations and cast a ballot. And when will early voting begin? It will begin in 2024. Part of the reason it won't be implemented this November is quite simply we have to update some technology to make sure that we can track 
when people vote early, much like we do with absentee ballots. And the company, the third party vendor who needs to build that system needs time. And again, you say that each town will have locations that will accommodate the early voting. Exactly, exactly. And like and like any other polling place, they will definitely be ADA compatible, you know, make sure there's parking. Um, towns will be encouraged to make sure they're thinking about transportation um, needs and public transportation routes. So I think this will be of great benefit to many Connecticut voters. As you likely know, the constitutional amendment was approved on the ballot last year by over 60 percent of voters. How will this be different from absentee voting? It's different in that um, we are also one of very few states that don't have what people call no excuse absentee voting. Um, So you have to meet one of six very specific criteria to apply for an absentee ballot. So early voting is like election day voting in that every eligible voter can vote without needing an excuse. There was an article in the uh, CT Mirror, the online news Mm -hmm. source. Early voting is estimated to cost, according to the article, about $4.5 million to the state. The bill does allocate some funds to help municipalities cover those costs. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how much has been set aside, and do you think it's, it's enough to make this early voting bill have teeth? Um, It's a good question. Right now, so the budget passed without what I would consider ample funding, Mm -hmm. especially in a presidential election where you don't want to skimp on staffing, to be sure. My hope we will do a mid-year budget or the legislature will do a mid-year budget adjustment when they're in session early 2024. So the amount for this fiscal year only needs to cover the presidential preference primary. But Connecticut is a late primary state, so it is possible that we won't have one because all the choices may have been removed from the ballot by the time we get to that date. So 14 days as far as early voting goes, do you think there'll be an effort to lengthen that to expand the number of days for early voting in the future? think so. So no excuse absentee ballot voting will appear as a possible constitutional amendment on the ballot in November 2024. So if voters once again say that they would like to see that in Connecticut, that gives us an opportunity in 2025 to shape a holistic system. So if we have no excuse absentee voting, I think we can concentrate early voting on those time periods where town hall is not open. So I I think we would look at probably shrinking the hours instead of expanding them. Is there a place that voters, Connecticut voters, can go to get complete information on early voting? Not yet. So the legislature, as you know, just passed the the Senate, just passed it this week. The governor just signed it. So our office will now begin writing the regulation. So all the minutiae and details that the the bill doesn't spell out or get into. Once we have that, we will certainly make that widely available. So we will be involving our local registrars of voters to make sure that everyone is on board with both the process and making sure they understand how it's implemented. We'll also be putting together a training program. 
I've been talking about Connecticut's new early voting law with the Connecticut Secretary of the State, Stephanie Thomas. Secretary Thomas, thanks so much for spending some time with us and explaining how this new law will impact voting in the state. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate the time. Have a good day. You too. Thank you very much. Lawmakers considered several bills that would expand Husky Health to cover more Connecticut residents. Last week, we spoke with advocates for those changes, and we've invited them back to find out where the bills stand now. Rick Famiglietti is an advocate with the Center for Disability Rights in West Haven. His group was supporting the passage of two proposals that would boost the income and asset limits for Husky Part C. That's a Medicaid program for residents over the age of 65 and those with disabilities. And Mr. Famiglietti joins us now via Zoom. Uh, welcome to The Full Story. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, could you remind us about the bills and how they would help make more people with disabilities eligible for Husky Part C? Well, for Husky Part C, as you know, the, the income and asset limits hasn't been um, increased in many years. Well, actually, let me correct that. I, I think it was not that long ago where, where was the income limit was increased by a little bit. So now, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, I think the income limits like eleven sixty two per month. Mm-hmm. The asset limits are still remaining the same currently, which is sixteen hundred for a single person and uh, twenty four hundred for a couple. And that's what we were trying to change. And, and what happened with the bills that were on the table for the uh, state lawmakers to deal with? Well, we ran into some issues. Um, there was something that was passed. And we're a little bit disappointed because they've increased the the income limit to 105% of the federal poverty level. We were asking for 138%. And the issue with that is it doesn't go into effect until October of 24. So we have to wait 16 months for that to happen. And they did nothing for the asset limit. Hmm, obvious. So it's still going to remain at 1624. And obviously, advocates for the change, like the Center for Disability Rights in West Haven, you can't be satisfied with uh, what lawmakers decided to do or not to do, I guess. Yeah, right. No, we're not. You know, Husky B it still has a higher income limit for people who are able-bodied with no asset limit. And we have people that are going to be coming off the MedConnect, such as myself. And I'm going to have to spend down to uh, those asset limits of 1,600 and And I'll probably be on a spend down once I go back on disability. And can you remind us or or give us a, a feeling for really what that means in your life? What kind of an impact does that have on, on the way that you live? Well, if I come to retirement age, which would be in another seven or eight years, um, or if I can't make it to retirement age, I'm going to have to go back on disability early, which is probably more of what I'm looking at, for me anyways. When that happens, if there are no changes to the income and the asset limits for Husky C, for the people who are not working, I will have to um, spend down any assets that I have through that low asset limit. And I would probably be on what's called the Medicaid spend down because my anticipation of even my Social Security disability benefit is going to be higher than the income limit that's current. 
for Husky C. Were you able to get any kind of a an answer from from lawmakers from state government as to why the change that did occur with the bills that were on the table were relatively minor? The improvements were relatively minor? I believe it was due to the spending cap. So yeah, we do have a surplus, but I guess So in other words it wasn't we're not in allowed the, to spend. It wasn't in the budget to to accommodate that is is what you're saying. The spending cap on the budget is what perhaps kept this bill from passing as it was intended. That is how I understand it, yes, as well as I think, uh, although we had some great support, a lot of support by the state legislature, there was a lot of issues with people weren't understanding, well, if we did this, would it hurt another group, and things were going back and forth like that. That may or may not have some little bit of a play into it, but I think we've addressed all those issues in our interviews with the legislators and things. So I think it really comes down to it was the spending cap and what was in the budget. And there was a lot of asks. Is there a place people can go to get more information about the current uh, state of Husky Sea? There have been a few changes. It can be very confusing, as as uh, you've explained as well. Uh, is there a, a website that people can go to to get the latest on this? Yeah, I guess they can look up the bill. Um, if there's specific information they want with some questions, they can certainly contact uh, the Center for Disability Rights. And we can put them in that correct direction. It would depend on what information they were looking for. Anything on the bill, they can go to the General Assembly website. Um, if they have trouble navigating that, they can contact me at the Center for Disability Rights, and I can help them get to that. Rick Famiglietti is an advocate with the Center for Disability Rights in West Haven. We've been talking about Husky C, Husky Part C, and the bill that eventually did pass in the Connecticut State Legislature. Mr. Famiglietti, thank you so much for sharing with us your story and getting us up to speed on the current state of Husky C. We appreciate that. You're very welcome. Well, at least something got passed. It's not what we wanted. This week, the Connecticut House passed a bill that will expand Husky Health Parts A and B for children regardless of their immigration status. But lawmakers did pare back the age limit for coverage from 26 down to 15. For more on the changes made to this bill, we've invited Luis Luna back to the full story. He's the coalition manager for Husky for Immigrants, and he is on Zoom once again. Mr. Luna, welcome back to the full story. Thank you so much uh, for having me again. Certainly. So what was in the final version of the bill that expands Husky A and B? Yeah, so uh, the final version of the bill will expand Husky eligibility to children 15 and under starting in July 1st, 2024. Um, It also includes a study bill uh, that will look into the costs and benefits of uh, any person uh, any undocumented person, 25 and younger. That sounds like a very important piece of the legislation uh, moving forward in when there were efforts to perhaps increase the age eligibility. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I think that's really, imp- I think that's really important. Um, I think uh, we are happy that the study is there because it will help us understand the, the benefits and, and cost of the program ex- expanding into 25 and would also help us pave the way for for continued uh, expansion. 
And as uh, as you mentioned, this this changes the age of coverage from 12 up to 15. Do we know how many more kids will be covered when the age goes up to 15? It would cover um, roughly 1,500 children. And this is from the uh, RAND report and from the Migration Policy Institute. This is where we're getting those numbers from. So expansion is changing people's lives immediately. Uh, since the beginning of implementation in January of this year, um, up to the end of May, 5,355 children have signed up for the program. And that means that they can now have access to healthcare. It means that they can get, they can access preventative care. They can access regular check-ins with their doctors. It also means that um, all the federally qualified uh, healthcare centers can now build a state and get and get some revenue uh, back. But most importantly, um, it, it gives families and parents peace of mind that their children are now able to access the care that they need. And the numbers are very, very, very strong. Um, well, 5,355 kids that now have uh, healthcare is, it's great. Like it, it gives, it is like sort of like the fuel that gives us to say that, hey, like we're making a difference and it, the difference is being felt right now. And again, that's just considering the change from January that allows for coverage through the age of 12. And now we're talking about that age going up to 15. So one would think that uh, enrollment will increase further uh, in the weeks and months to come. Obviously, the bill just passed, and uh, I guess the governor has yet to sign it. But once that happens, those children will be eligible, too, to enroll. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And then also just uh, worth highlighting that um, children who are eligible now, who are 12 and under, they will keep their, their coverage until the age of 18. When we last spoke to you uh, last week, you said that the 15-year-old age limit was was really not good enough. And again, as we mentioned, initially, lawmakers and advocates were pushing for an age limit for coverage to uh, 26, then then, uh, 26, and then 19 seemed to be on the table, and now now it's 15. And again, as you said, that really is not good enough. It did pass with 15, but what are the next steps for your coalition in the face of this particular bill? Do you see this as as a an improvement, a victory? This campaign started four years ago, and I think that the um, the way in which we have organized and have created an effective campaign, um, it's really important to really highlight. I think Connecticut uh, is a state where habits are steady and it's very difficult to advance at at high speeds in this state. So I think I just want to highlight the work that the coalition and all of the members of the coalition have done in terms of mobilization. We have become really a a big voice for um, healthcare rights inside of the capital and and, and outside of, of the capital as well. So with that, you know, we feel really, really, ha- really happy. I think thinking about the state and how much it costs, the expansion is uh, relatively low, and to be able to get to fifteen is is a disappointment uh, to all of us. And we felt that we could get at least to eighteen because that, that's what was indicated to us in the in the years before that. Hey, you know, like this year we'll get to twelve, but next year we'll get to we'll we'll cover all children. And that, and that wasn't the case. So it's important to, to realize that. And, and lastly, what I would say is that 
it was it was an uphill battle, starting with um, the first process of of the budget, which was when the governor put out his budget, he uh, allocated zero dollars to this, which made it very difficult. He did say he did indicate that he will sign anything that goes to his bill in terms of expansion. If he gets to eighteen, he'll sign it. If he gets to twenty six, he'll sign it. But it makes it more difficult to, for legislators to do a big expansion to 18 or 26 when there's no money in the budget because of the the constraints around the spending cap and everything that we saw in this campaign, in the, in this session in regards to that. What happens to a Husky for immigrants now? What happens to the coalition? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, uh, we're you know, we're excited. I think like we, we uh, have grown bigger than ever this year. We're really excited that people believe in this campaign and they continue to believe in this campaign. So we the coalition will will stick together um, at this point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, we've been having some, uh, we've been actually had, uh, I had a couple of meetings already with, with folks and thinking about the next steps, uh, the briefing and all that stuff. I think like healthcare doesn't go away, you know, and that's the point, you know, we will always need access to healthcare. We will always need to make sure that we take care of ourselves. So that's not going anywhere. So therefore, we are not going anywhere. We're not. We're gonna continue to align ourselves with with legislators who support who support um, this expansion, and we're gonna continue to have these conversations, build relationships. You know, we're really confident of of how we're gonna be moving uh, forward with this campaign. I've been uh, talking with Luis Luna about the expansion of Husky Health A and B for children, regardless of their immigration status in Connecticut. The age limit now up to fifteen moved up from 12. Mr. Luna is the coalition manager for Husky for Immigrants. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, letting us know what's what's in the future for the coalition. We appreciate your time once again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The New York 2023 legislative session is ending with a lot of drama. You may say, what else is new? Well, to tell us more about it, we turn to the Albany Bureau Chief for Newsday, Yancey Roy, and he joins me via Zoom. Yancey, hello. Hey, always great to be with you guys. Thank you. Uh, first of all, the session was supposed to end yesterday, right? But it's been extended to today? Yeah, extended to today. And who knows, the Assembly, which always takes a little bit longer than the Senate, might mm. spill over Saturday. That's that's not uncommon. Every year, the, the scheduled end of the session is a Thursday. Uh, it almost never happens to end on a Thursday. <laughs> uh, and yesterday, Thursday, Democrats did not address one of their top priorities, the housing crisis. They seem to scramble a bit this week to get a plan together. But yesterday, w- what happened? Negotiations broke down, fell apart? Well, if you start from the beginning, Kathy mm-hmm. Hochul had a housing initiative that she had dubbed was her one of her top initiatives. And it was broad and it, in, in simple terms, it was meant to build the housing stock, especially downstate, to then make housing more affordable. But it had some problems, including a mechanism that would have allowed state overrides of local zoning, which didn't fly at all in suburbia. So that plan failed earlier this year when they were trying to get the budget done. The legislature then tried to put together a working group of rank and file people to see if they could come up with something. Well, they came up with a, a, a variety of topics, you know, six or eight things, initiatives that they thought they could band together. 
including something called an extension of 421A, which is a tax incentive for developers, and also uh, good cause eviction law, which is complicated, but in some makes it harder for tenants to be evicted. It provides more tenants' rights. Well, the administration, the Hopeful administration, didn't really want that included in the housing initiative. So in the end, uh, the legislators were left with a bill that they could have put together six or eight things, which probably would have been vetoed by the governor. And so at that point, you have to strategically decide, do you force the issue now? Or you just say, look, we tried, you know, now it's pencils down, the session's about over, and we'll try it again next year. And um, I, I think that's what they decided rather than force any kind of veto or, or override issues. I, they would not have had the votes for the override. So everyone just kind of said, cool it, and we'll try again next year. Another high-profile issue has been the clean slate law, which would seal something like, what, two million criminal records. Could you tell us more about what's in that bill and the current status of it? Well, we can do the current status real quick. It's going to be passed probably Friday afternoon as we're talking here. Um, Strong support from the Democratic majorities in either house, and it will likely go through. The sort of short explanation of it is the idea and why they call it clean slate is that after you've been convicted and you've served your time and you've gone through a certain period where you've not gotten into any trouble, they say that folks should be able to seal that old conviction record so it doesn't hurt you in terms of getting a job or housing. The trick has been deciding what is the clock and how much time do you have to wait. And what they've settled in is three years after finishing a sentence for a misdemeanor, eight years after a felony. But also in a nod to the governor, I think they put in more uh, restrictions on what will never be ineligible. The legislators supported a lot of this, too. For example, sex crimes would never be eligible for sealing. Class A felonies like murder and your most serious felonies never be able to be sealed. Um, And that's what they decided. It looks like it's going to go through. Republicans have objected, as has the State District Attorneys Association. They say they don't object to the concept of someone trying to seal low-level convictions, but they wanted more of a judicial role or judicial oversight in deciding which convictions could be sealed. Another hot point again, bail reform. Just a a few, uh, four years ago in 2019, a new law passed that eliminated bail for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies in New York. Quite a bit of pushback on that, and it's undergone a few changes since then. I think the most recent was in April when the governor announced an amendment that would limit the initial law and give judges more discretion in in setting bail. What will the latest changes to the bail reform bill look like once the session ends? Do we know that? Yeah, in some, it gives judges a little bit more discretion over bail decisions. What Hochul had said and what some had argued is that the state had some conflicting clauses within the bail law, which gave judges discretion over serious felonies and some misdemeanors, sex crimes, domestic violence crimes. But there was also a clause in there which said judges should deploy the least restrictive means to get a defendant um, back to court for future court dates. And folks thought that that was in conflict and sometimes caused uh, confusion. Some argued the answer was more training for judges. But in the end, Hochul won a change in the law which strikes that clause 
And so the theory is that they'll no longer be in conflict with the idea that the judges will have discretion on some of the serious crimes. It's a win for her, but it probably still won't stop the overall criticism of people who don't like the bail law and who have used it effectively in local elections the last few years. There was also a bill that would consider reparations in connection with slavery, and I believe New York lawmakers did pass that. Could you fill us in a bit more about that? Um, That is to do a first step, which is to create a commission to study the issue and to study if anything moves forward on what grounds and what issues should be considered for reparations. What they're doing basically is kind of following that California playbook. The California state legislature did this a few years ago, created a commission. The commission created a report. Well, it's creating a report, I think, that gets unveiled, I want to say July 1st, if I'm not mistaken. And now New York is sort of following in those footsteps. The legislature passed it, both houses, on Thursday. It's going to be interesting to see how the commission gets created and what goes forward from here. Another law called Sammy's Law uh, that would reduce speed limits. It did look like it was on track to pass. Seems to have stalled, if, if I'm not mistaken. What's going on with that law? Sammy's Law would affect speed limits in the city, uh, allowing the city to lower them to 20 in some areas. The Senate passed it. As we speak right here at this moment, the Assembly has not passed it. It wasn't quite clear if that was going to happen. But again, we're we're not at the finish line yet. So uh, that one still has a chance. There's also the Stop Silencing Survivors Bill that would ban most forms of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. That one passed both the Assembly and Senate, right? Uh, Will the governor sign it? You know, there's so many issues that are kind of and bills that get thrown through the the, the door, if you will, the last uh, few days, hundreds of them. Mm. Sometimes you have to wait to see if the governor is going to take a position on a particular issue. OK. And there are some bills that were somewhat less weighty, I guess you might say, uh, a bill to change the name of the Mario Cuomo Bridge back to the Tappan Zee Bridge uh, across the Hudson well, uh, a bit a bit upstate uh, how did that come to be? Well, you know, they, they ended up uh, compromising a bit, and I still don't know if that'll get full passage in the legislature as, as we speak right now. Mm-hmm. It was going to be to change it back from the Mario Cuomo Bridge back to the Tappan Zee Bridge. And in sort of a political compromise, they, they now want to say that the full name will be the Mario Cuomo <laughs> Tappan Zee Bridge. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yancey, are there other bills um, that we should keep our eyes on, maybe perhaps on the back burner or maybe other high-profile ones we've missed? There's some bills that are important that don't quite get the uh, attention of, you know, a clean slate or housing. There's a wrongful death statute that the legislature has passed before, and hopeful vetoed before. They passed it again this time, made some changes hoping that'll go through. Basically, the idea from advocate standpoint is that New York has an outdated statute about who, how, how you might collect awards when there's a wrongful death in a civil lawsuit, and that the old law based it on basically someone's job and earning potential. And advocates said, well, you know, someone who is, in a, you know, lower wage 
blue collar job, you, you shouldn't be valuing that life less than a high powered lawyer. Um, it should not come down to your wage earnings. And so that's what they're looking to change. But there's a lot of opposition um, from the medical society and, and other groups uh, about uh, those sorts of issues. Um, there's something called Angelica's Law, which got uh, passage in both houses. It would lower the amount of times for a suspended license before someone could be charged with a felony. And this grew out of a like so many bills, they, they grew out of a sort of a tragic case. This was on Long Island where a young woman was killed by a driver who had seven license suspensions and still hadn't been charged with a felony because the old standard was, I believe, 10, if I'm not mistaken. And I believe it's going to be lowered to five. You know, so there are all sorts of things like that that are really important, even if they're not that they get the statewide headlines that others get. And another one we should mention, which is would have a statewide impact is that uh, Democrats are poised to change local elections from odd number years to even number years so that your county executive, your town supervisor, right now we elect those in your odd number years, like 23 or 21. They would move those to the even number years, which in New York means either a gubernatorial election year or a presidential election year. The argument's strong on both sides. The Democrats say that, first of all, it'll be less expensive for local governments. You don't have to have an election every year and all the costs associated with it. And it'll boost turnout because turnout's better when there's a governor or president up. Republicans point out that, yeah, those even number of years tend to be better for Democrats, so let's not kid ourselves. Um, and they also make the point that if you move elect local elections into a presidential year, the public just won't pay attention. You might have important issues, a town referendum, your town supervisor, that will become part of the national election and be diluted by that, and you won't have a, an attention on local issues. But it looks like it's going through because houses are controlled by Democrats, and they've already said they're on board to, to pass it. And the governor, of course, would sign it. State party wants it that way, so it would put it this way. It'd be surprising if she vetoed that. We mentioned uh, early on that uh, the session had been extended beyond the scheduled Thursday, and you said that's pretty much standard procedure or certainly not surprising. Uh, I'm wondering, the uh, session in general, was it particularly con uh, contentious uh, at all, or was it more or less business as usual this time around? There's always contention. Uh, you know, There's it always depends on what there is. I mean, you know, Governor Hochul started off with a stumble. Right. Her, her nominee for chief judge was voted down, which is unprecedented, might strike some as inside baseball. Folks who might be just concerned with the school aid and the taxes and, and, and the economy and those sorts of things. One thing interesting about that, though, the stumble over the judge illustrates how some of the power dynamic in Albany has changed. For decades, it was Democrat versus Republican and specifically Senate versus Assembly, often with a governor in the middle. And the governor could act as a peacemaker. He could act as triangulator. He could act as dictator. Now there's a united legislature controlled by overall pretty liberal Democrats who are bargaining with a more moderate governor. And so in some ways, 
the governor is in sync with Democrats on a lot of issues. Let's not mistake that they're in sync. With, but at times they will conflict because they are more liberal than the Governor Hochul. And um, they now have a lot more leverage than they used to, and the legislators, that is, than they used to in the past. Yancey Roy is the Albany Bureau Chief for Newsday. Yancey, thanks for filling us in on the closing days of the New York 2023 legislative session. We appreciate it. Always appreciate it. Thanks. Non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs, were another issue on New York lawmakers' agenda this session. The bill, technically known as SB 4516, also called the Stop Silencing Survivors Bill, would ban most forms of NDAs. And not just for sexual harassment, but for all toxic workplace issues, including race, gender identity, age, or disability discrimination. With me now is Julie Roginski. She's one of the co-founders of Lift Our Voices. That's a nonprofit organization working to create safer and more equitable workplaces. And Ms. Roginski joins us on Zoom to tell us more about the bill. Welcome to The Full Story. Thanks so much for having me. First, tell us, if you would, uh, why did you decide to create the organization, Lift Our Voices, uh, with your co-founder, Gretchen Carlson? Right. Well, uh, people might be familiar with with our stories. Gretchen Carlson in 2016 was Mm -hmm. the first woman to come forward and accuse Roger Ailes, then the CEO and chairman of Fox News, uh, of sexual harassment and retaliation. I came forward about 10 months later uh, with the same allegations. But after we settled our cases, what we found was that we were bound by non-disclosure agreements, which means that we can never tell our own stories and we cannot even share with our former colleagues anything that we might have known to prevent other people who might be predators out of the network from preying upon them. And what we realized was that there was a culture of silence that was just absolutely blanketing the American workforce over a third of all American workers are bound by non-disclosure agreements, which means that if something really bad happens to you at work, you cannot talk about it with your colleagues, with your friends, with your loved ones. You can't even talk about it very often with your clergy uh, member or with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And so what that means is that we are really creating a system where the survivors are the ones who have to be silent and not disclose anything that happened to them. But predators are allowed to remain because if you can't talk about what happened to you, you can't disclose any of it. It means that there's no accountability and it means that more often than not, predators are allowed to remain with nobody being the wiser and and the cycle perpetuates itself. And we'd heard after our stories, because they were a little high profile, um, from so many people all over the country and actually all over the world who have very similar stories and who weren't able to speak. And we looked around and realized nobody else was really talking about this and, and doing this kind of work. So we decided to launch Lift Our Voices to make sure that we were bringing awareness to this and to change laws and to change the culture to make sure this doesn't happen again. Let's talk about NDAs specifically, the purpose of NDAs. Based on what uh, we've we've just been talking about, it sounds like they were designed in order to keep secrets secret, those kinds of secrets, uh, harassment secrets. But that's not what they were developed for originally, Correct? No, no, not at all. They were originally developed. And I think most people still think when they sign an NDA that they are prevented from talking about trade secrets. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. That that should be the case. Look, if you know the secret formula to Coca-Cola, we always say you shouldn't be able to walk it across the street to Pepsi. That's a competitive trade secret that you're privy to. But over the last 20 to 30 years, they've been expanded so much that they now don't just cover trade secrets. They cover all sorts of dirty laundry. 
specifically harassment, um, assault, retaliation, discrimination of all kinds. And what we're doing effectively is by creating this awful, awful culture of silence, we are driving out the very people from the workplace that we want to have in the workplace, women, people of color, and others who much more often than others are the ones subjected to these non-disclosure agreements. Uh, when you can't say anything, when you can't raise your hand and say, this has happened to me, what that means is that you have one of two choices. You either just keep quiet and, and have the behavior perpetuate itself, or you quit, right? You, because you can't work there anymore. But the problem is when you quit and you apply for your next job and somebody says, well, why, why did you leave this job where you had, where you worked for the last 10, 20, 30 years? Your answer has to be, I can't tell you because you're bound by an NDA. And of course, if somebody hears that, they think that you're the one who did something wrong and they're not going to hire you. And so we've spoken to thousands and thousands of people since we launched Lift Our Voices. And I can tell you that the vast majority never work in their chosen field again. And so we're driving out people from not just their jobs, but their chosen careers as a result of these silencing mechanisms. It's a horrible, horrible impact that it's having on our economy, on our culture, and on the psychological well-being of, of our workforce. It seems like a long way from an NDA being a shield for companies to, uh, to protect their trade secrets to a shield for companies against lawsuits for abusive behaviors. That, that seems like a big gap. Did it happen suddenly, uh, gradually? Uh, what was the evolution of it, uh, as far as it you know? It happened gradually, as I think more. And look, if you're a lawyer at a company, your job is to protect the company. It's not necessarily to protect any one individual survivor. This really, it's interesting. These silencing mechanisms really began to take on a, a larger-than-life role in the early 90s. And what happened in the early 90s to make that happen? I, now, I don't know if correlation is causation, and so I don't know if this is actually, uh, you can correlate these two, but Anita Hill happened. And when Anita Hill came forward, two things happened, right? It created a mass movement for, for women to be able to talk more about harassment in the workplace. And you had the year of the women, if you remember back in 1992, where, mm -hmm. where so many women got elected to Congress as a result of the Anita Hill hearings. The other thing that happened was Corporations looked around and they said, oh, my goodness, we cannot afford to have an Anita Hill here. We just cannot afford to have that happen. And so slowly but surely, more and more and more and more companies and organizations started using these non-disclosure agreements to prevent an Anita Hill from coming forward at their company. And, uh, you know, look, we owe a massive, massive debt of gratitude to Anita Hill for, for putting these issues front and center in society. But the law of unintended consequences also meant that there are people who did not have the best interests of survivors at heart who tried to look for new and innovative ways to prevent people like Anita Hill from coming forward. What's the wording in an NDA or what was the wording in an NDA, the, the context that would sort of put a blanket over anything that's, that happened there from being disclosed elsewhere? It sounds like y you can't talk about anything, period, based on those kinds of NDAs. Well, there are, there are many different kinds of NDAs, right? There's an NDA you sign on the first day of work, which means that anything that happens to you afterwards, you will never be able to disclose again. There's an NDA that you sign as a result of potentially severance, where they say after you get fired, um, and you might be fired for no cause at all. You might be fired because your boss harassed you or your boss discriminated against you. And they may say, okay, you obviously don't fit into this company culture after you complain but we'll give you X amount of money to go away quietly. But in exchange for that, you have to sign an NDA. 
And then there's an NDA as a result of settlement. And that's an NDA where you sue and somebody says, great, okay, before you actually sue in open court, as we're negotiating a settlement, you have to, in exchange for money, you have to sign this NDA, which which I think most people don't realize is really legalized bribery, right? We're bribing you into covering up our dirty laundry, which you complained about originally. I've been bound by two NDAs in my life. The first NDA was the Fox one that I, that I talked about, uh, and that was as a result of settlement, which prevents me from telling you anything that happened to me as a result of my lawsuit at Fox News. The second NDA that I signed, which is a lot more expansive, and that's the kind of NDA that I think really makes people's head explode, is that I was a consultant and, and still am a political consultant. Uh, one of my clients was was the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, who's still the governor of New Jersey. And on my first day of consulting for him, when I was a lot more naive about these kinds of agreements, I signed a very long contract, as, as many people do. And buried in that contract was a clause that basically said, I could not disclose anything to anybody about anything that I saw or witnessed whatsoever on his campaign. I mean, anything whatsoever. So technically, I couldn't even tell you that I worked for him, even though obviously I worked for him. That was so broad that, uh, and really what, what impassioned tremendously about getting involved in these issues was that uh, several years later, a young woman came to me uh, and said, a young volunteer came to me and called me really in tears for help. She had been sexually assaulted, allegedly, on his campaign. And she said to me, I need your help. You were the senior woman on this campaign. Can I talk to you about what happened to me and what the culture was? I had to listen to her. But because of this NDA and because his lawyers consistently reminded me that I was bound by this NDA, I could not tell her anything that I had witnessed that potentially could help her and, and help her case when she ultimately sued. So here you have a woman coming to me in, in tears and massive distress, begging for help. And this NDA prevented me because it was so broad from telling her anything or helping her in any way. Um, that was really the darkest day of my professional life, darker than anything that had happened to me personally. And when people hear that story, I think they finally begin to understand how pernicious these clauses are. How would the New York bill, the Stop Silencing Survivors bill, help survivors of harassment and, and improve workplace culture? So New York has a law on the books that I think when legislators passed it several years ago, the intent was very good. And it was to ban NDAs except at the request of the survivor. And what that means is, of course, nobody can bind you to an NDA unless you request an NDA. The intent was good, but I think because legislators may not have been in the weeds on these issues the way that some of us are, they, they didn't understand the unintended consequences, which of course means that if I accuse my boss of, of something awful, of discrimination, hypothetically, and my boss says to me, okay, great, I will give you a million dollars if you sign an NDA, but I'll only give you $1 if you don't sign an NDA. Well, you've got pressure from your own lawyers to sign it because of course they make money the more you make money. You yourself understand that you no longer have a job, potentially you need the money, so you're gonna sign an NDA. And in that same way, we're still binding people to silence. I will say New Jersey a few years ago across the river got rid of NDAs for everything. And what we found after looking at the data for now four years is that there is no difference between monetary compensation for people who before this law went into effect and now. And what that means is that 
companies don't want to go to court. They don't want to go to open court. They will settle with you regardless whether you have an NDA or not. So for anybody who thinks that survivors will request one because they'll get more money, there is no effect New Jersey has found on the difference between people who sign an NDA and the amount of settlement they got before and the amount of settlement after this law went into effect. And that's something that I think people in New York and, and Connecticut and, and other places around the country need to understand, that the power is entirely right now in the hands of the corporation because they will waive more money in front of you to sign an NDA. Although it doesn't really matter whether you do or you don't, they still don't want to go to court. They will still give you that amount of money ultimately if you don't sign an NDA. And that's all we're trying to say in New York. Don't permit this legalized bribery because that's exactly what this is. You're legally bribing people to keep their mouths shut. And that should not be. And I think the more and more that we speak to elected officials and others in New York, the more they understand that the law that they passed a few years ago was a very good law, but it doesn't go far enough. And in fact, it's somewhat counterproductive because if you tried to get out of your NDA today after, quote unquote, requesting one at the request of the survivor, a judge will say to you, well, what are you complaining about? You're the one who requested it. Whereas, in fact, of course, you didn't really request it. You were just told that you would never get a settlement if you didn't. On your website, uh, on the uh, on the Lift Our Voices website, it says companies are not required to let you know that you are no longer bound by forced arbitration clauses and NDAs if you are a survivor or a witness of sexual harassment or assault at work. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. So we were very lucky at Lift Our Voices to be able to, in the most polarized time of our lives, <laughs> to be able to pass two federal laws uh, in the last year and a half. And one was to ban forced arbitration for sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the other was to ban pre-dispute NDAs for sexual harassment and assault. Those are the laws of the land now. And they, they passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. President Biden signed them both into law. But companies don't have to tell you that those laws exist. It's up to you to know that. And so what anybody listening to this needs to know is if you were sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, faced any kind of sexual misconduct, that you no longer are bound by any arbitration agreement that you might have signed on your first day of work. And if you have not yet filed a lawsuit, you are not bound by an NDA that you might have signed on the first day of work, which means that you are free to talk about what happened to you. That NDA that you signed, that forced arbitration clause that you signed, does not apply to you anymore. Now, what's fascinating about that, of course, is that it only applies to sexual misconduct. So if you are sitting in a, a, a cubicle next to somebody who was harassed and you were subject to, let's say, gender discrimination or racial discrimination, you still have to keep your mouth shut. So we're fighting very hard to expand uh, the arbitration law to other protected classes in Washington and fighting equally hard to expand NDA laws to all protected classes in 50 states. Julie Roginski is the co-founder of Lift Our Voices, nonprofit organization working, working to create safer and more equitable workspaces. We've been talking about the New York Bill, SB 4516, also called the Stop Silencing Survivors Bill, that legislators are considering. Thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate uh, all your insights and, and uh, hearing about the work that you've been doing both uh, in New York and federal and nationally. We appreciate that. Really grateful to be on with you. Thank you so much. We have some news to share with you about the full story. The program is getting a reboot. We're going exclusively digital. And our first online-only content will be an interview with educator, author, and LGBTQ plus activist, Chastin Buttigieg. 
will discuss his new book, I Have Something to Tell You for Young Readers, a memoir. That interview will be posted next Wednesday. And that's it for our program today, produced by Sophie Kamizzi with Fatou Sangare and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuser. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.